As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. Joe Biden spends a lot of time right now raising big money from donors, and I don't blame him for it. That's the way you win. You know, it takes time away from him meeting with voters. It takes time away from him trying to raise money from people don't don't have as much money, and ultimately it creates ties with big donors who are going to want things back should he become president. And again, this isn't simply him, but that's a corrosive part of our system. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Julian Zelizer knows a great deal about American politics, both from the perspective of a professional historian and as a prolific editorialist and commentator on CNN and elsewhere. His work helped bring back the serious study of political history in American universities. And his upcoming book, one in a long line of them, is about Newt Gingrich and the rise of the Republican Party. We had a really good conversation about his career and about politics. Well worth your listen. Julian is currently professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Professor Julian Zelizer. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Julian, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I'm Julian Zelizer. I'm a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University. I'm also a CNN political analyst. My last book was called Fault Lines, which I wrote with Kevin Cruz. And I have another book coming out in April called Burning Down the House. It's not every student of history that gets to move kind of to the top of the game at Princeton. Where did you grow up and what was your path to that job? I grew up in New Jersey. I was the child, both of a rabbi and an academic, uh, so I was familiar with learning and teaching uh, growing up. I went to Brandeis University, and there I got really interested both in history and politics, and my junior year, I was awarded a fellowship from the Ford Foundation for younger students who might go into academia. And I worked for a whole year with an advisor. His name was Jim Kloppenberg, who was an intellectual historian. And I wrote about the history of Massachusetts liberalism. I did archival research. I did interviews. I really uh, got to know what it was like to write a project of this scale and scope. And that was really important for me. 
I went to Johns Hopkins for graduate school after where I studied with someone named Luca Lambos about the development of the government and public policy. And, and by early graduate school, I was pretty clear in terms of the kind of questions I wanted to study. And things went well. I had several jobs. I first taught at SUNY Albany uh, in the history department in the public policy school. So I was always interested in the intersection between these two worlds. I moved then to Boston University, and finally I ended up at Princeton. But in terms of subject matter and issues, I'd say since college, I pretty much knew the direction I was going. And what were those kind of questions that you had focused on? Well, I was interested very much in how democracy actually works, uh, whether looking at the federal government or looking at how citizens impact policy. I understood theoretically what democracy was. I understood idealistically what different people thought democracy should be. But what was great about studying the history was getting into the nitty gritty and to seeing it in action. And a lot of my early work and work right through today focuses on Congress for that reason. I'm just fascinated with the institution and seeing you know, how different sides of political issues are able to agree on compromises, are not able to reach agreement, how that process actually plays out when we're talking about specific legislation. It was all about the functioning of, of democracy. And where I changed, I'd say, over time was I've become increasingly interested with the dynamics of political partisanship and uh, how that's evolved and how that's worked since the 1970s and trying to tell the history of that process. When you were looking at, I guess, the evolution of liberalism in Massachusetts, what did you find there? Well, that, that was uh, a great uh, way to start all this right after the 1988 election. And so I was fascinated. That term became a big issue then. Michael Dukakis, who was the governor of Massachusetts, ran against George H.W. Bush and lost. And that term was used derisively. And even Dukakis backed away from it. So I, I kind of trace the history of liberalism as it started with machine politics in the late 19th and early 20th century, where it was really uh, based in cities and, and in kind of urban machine politics, trying to translate government money and government spending into benefits for average citizens, to the mid-20th uh, century, where it really transformed into a discussion about bold federal initiatives and more support from candidates and politicians from the area for those sorts of you know, great society and, and before that New Deal programs to a much more technocratic and what today we call centrist vision, which was uh, more shaped by market-based ideas, which was very hesitant about embracing government uh, as a tool. And so that was a transformation in the state that I think was also relevant throughout the country. As you were building that career, you're kind of moving... I don't know, wouldn't want to characterize each of those schools, but you're moving up towards Princeton. Is that because you're writing a lot of books and getting well-known? How did you traverse that space? Some of it was, yes, I wrote a lot. This is how academia works. I made my reputation uh, through my books and through my articles. And When I was in graduate school in the mid-90s, the field of political history was something 
that had lost favor in the discipline. A lot of historians from the 60s who, when I was in graduate school, were the senior historians, were more interested in social history and cultural history, understanding America from the bottom up. It was kind of part of the outlook of the 1960s. Government was not as important. Political leaders didn't really reflect what the country was about. And you had to look outside of Washington to understand what mattered. And so there were lots of local uh, studies of communities throughout the country, an emphasis on working class history and and how uh, gender and race played out over time. And I was interested in bringing politics back and in doing it in ways that were different than older generations of historians who were disconnected from issues of race and gender and to think of political history in a new way. And, and one of the things I was able to participate in during the early years of my career as a professor was revitalizing this field. And there were a group of us who really tried to reimagine what political history could be, to study uh, government not simply as presidents who represented what the country was, but understanding the institutions of government, understanding public policy in itself, and understanding the relationship between what happens in Washington and what happens in the rest of the country. And I, I think part of my path to Princeton was being part of the revitalization of that field and, and fortunately being successful in making it a hot topic again among academics. And so uh, that was my trajectory, and I think that's ultimately what caught the eye of, of the university. And and then part of it is people noticing you. It's It's part of the hardest thing of any profession, academia or otherwise, you do your work, hopefully you do good work, but then it depends on people in the great institutions just taking notice. And, and that happened, and I was brought in both in the Wilson School and the History Department. There's a certain amount of entrepreneurship in building a career like that, I assume. That's true. Uh, I mean, there's a, a lot of hard work and persistence, uh, certainly within academia, the path to success is not clear. Uh, and so you just persist and you have to keep working hard, even though you don't know exactly where it's all going to end up. It's unlike a lot of other professions, I think, that way. And then, yes, entrepreneurship. I not only wrote this stuff and worked on this stuff, but I thought about how do you present it and how do you make sure it's getting attention? And uh, certainly in the academic part of my career, and I can talk a little about the media part as well, entrepreneurship is important. You can't simply sit and wait for everything to happen. It's certainly true in all kinds of publications. You have to sell the material uh, and do as much as you can to make sure it gets out there, whether it's going to conferences and academics and and not only networking, but but thinking of interesting ways to package your work with other work that's similar uh, or doing things like editing books that showcase, you know, new fields that you are part of. You mentioned that there was a group of historians that were pushing this revitalization of American political history. Who else was in that group? Yeah, there's a bunch of us uh, from all periods. Joanne Freeman, who's a professor at Yale, she just wrote a book about Congress and violence in the 19th century. She was at the forefront of uh, thinking about political culture and and the uh, kind of non-material parts of politics and why those mattered, ideas, rhetoric, rituals. Sven Beckert was another one who was thinking of 
how do you write about the history of capitalism with politics as a central issue beyond simply the history of a corporation, but really thinking, for example, of a commodity and tracing its history from the start to finish. Bill Novak, he is a legal historian who was very intent on bringing the law uh, back into study of public policy. Uh, Meg Jacobs wrote about uh, the New Deal and was particularly focused on writing about history from the bottom up and understanding how average citizens impacted things like the New Deal and World War II policies. And there were several others. Uh, That's just a a handful. Um, One of the first things I did was I edited a book both with Meg and Bill called The Democratic Experiment. And we were just out of graduate school and we had all gotten to know each other. And, and we edited this book and we had two mini conferences where we brought a lot of these people together. There were some others, Michael Wilrich and Rebecca Edwards. And, and the book came out with Princeton Press. And it, it was great in that it became the book talking about entrepreneurship, a showcase of this new generation of historians. And we're very proud that everyone in that book did really well and has gone on to have great careers. But that's the cohort I'm talking about. Now I'm, I'm older and, and there's kind of second and third waves of political history that are going in different directions. So that's the best feeling. It's not just that we were part of this. There's now entire groups of younger graduate students who don't even think of this as an issue and are just developing this whole field of political history. Of all the books that you've written, which one are you most proud of? Well, I'm proud of all of them, uh, but there's two I like a lot. Well, three. One was called On Capitol Hill. That was my second book, and it was about reform in Congress during the 1970s and how a, a generation of Democrats who came in after Vietnam and Watergate tried to change the way the institution worked. They opened up hearings to television. They put in ethics laws. They they made political parties stronger. For me personally, it felt like a bolder book where I made just a big argument about a period, and it was great in that it was well-received by historians and political scientists. I wrote a book a few years ago called The Fierce Urgency of Now, which is about Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society. Personally, that was, a for me, a high point in that I brought together a lot of different issues I had been studying since graduate school into what I thought was a pretty good narrative. So it was a big point about the limits of presidential power uh, connected to just a great riveting story of the 1960s. I was really proud with how that book came out and the kind of discussion it generated. And I'm really excited about this book coming out in April called Burning Down the House, which is about uh, how Newt Gingrich came to power in the 1980s through a scandal where he helped bring down the Speaker of the House in 1989 And that, like fierce urgency, it it connects a lot of issues that have been in my mind since graduate school, but I found a great story, like a really, I think, pretty riveting House of Cards type narrative to tell it. And so those are some of the books. And and obviously, I loved working with Kevin on Fault Lines because that was just a great collaborative project for us and, and covered an entire period since the 70s, which is a totally different kind of book. It seems like every time I look up, you have another op-ed. And I think I read somewhere that you're in the 700-plus op-eds point. And then uh, CNN commentary, is that right? Yeah, even more at this point. 
I write at least one a week. I've been doing this for a long time. I've been writing for CNN since I think 2009 when they started an opinion page and uh, it's grown into this pretty big operation back then it wasn't. Uh, so I write about one a week, sometimes two a week, and I've written for many other publications. And this has become a really big part of my career, the writing. I go on TV. I do NPR a lot. Before CNN, I've done other networks. And it's been really rewarding and not something I expected to do. It was something that just came about during my early years as a professor. But I really love it. I love being able to contribute to current debates uh, as they're unfolding and there is an immediacy and impact in terms of size of audience that you have when you do all this that's different than what you can have as an academic and it's hard it's all the time and it's a different style of writing and it can be a pretty contentious atmosphere as as people know the world of the media but i really love writing the op-eds and i think it's helped me with my book writing it's helped me think of how to make my writing more accessible and it's helped me with my teaching i think writing this way and, and doing it pretty quickly which is how you have to do it has been great uh, for my classroom work because there are similar challenges in that you're trying to translate complex ideas and to bring about ideas from the academy to what people are interested in who are not in the academy or who are undergrads and to say it in a succinct way and to say it in a way that's engaging. So it all works together. Uh, but I really love all the media work. My podcast, I've been interviewing a lot of people who I think of as progressive political entrepreneurs and that's kind of why I fit you into this. You're kind of an activist by op-ed in a certain sense. Is there a tension between sort of the sober world of writing books that you think about over time and quickly writing that op-ed that you're talking about? Well, there's two parts. One is it's, it's simply a different style of communication. So when I write a book, I, I work on it for about five or six years, and, and I go through so many drafts. It's always hard to look back and remember. I, I really work on it, fine-tune it. I, I give it to people to give me feedback. And, and so stylistically, it's different. The op-ed I write, my editor edits, reads, gives me a little feedback. It's out often within an hour or two. So that's different. And then in terms of the punchiness, yes, I think my books uh, have had more of a point of view over time, which I'm, I'm happy with. I've been more comfortable putting myself and my thoughts and analysis out there. And I do think of myself in a, as an activist, not a progressive activist, but an activist in terms of just trying to make a broader sense of the things that happen on a daily basis. And, you know, sometimes it's more pointed in an op-ed that I'm going to be in the classroom or a book. And uh, that is the nature of, of the outlet. So in general, though, the tension, it's worked well, I think, uh, in my development. Sometimes I have this sense that there could be American history up to Trump and then American history from Trump forward. But you're more acquainted with this history, perhaps, than I am. And how do you view him? Is it as a total aberration or continuation of threads or, or something of both? I, I see him as a continuation. Now, there, there's parts of President Trump, clearly, that are 
totally exceptional. And there are things he's doing as president that we don't see from any other president, certainly in modern times. The language that he's using, the way he'll break conventions, uh, diplomatic conventions, those are, are distinct. Uh, and even in the contemporary age, uh, the way in which he's trafficking in white nationalist rhetoric in 2019, not the 19th century, that's pretty dramatic. That said, a lot of what I've done, a lot of what I tend to write about or even talk about on air is, is this doesn't come out of nowhere. And the things I've certainly been studying about American politics since the 70s really help make sense of how we get a President Trump. I've written a lot about partisanship and how partisanship both solidified and changed over the course of time. And, and it helps understand where the Republican Party has shifted. I've written a lot about changes in the news media and, and how the current environment came to be. I've written a lot about race relations and, and the kinds of social tensions on, on immigration that, that Trump capitalizes on. And I really try to talk also in lectures about the foundation of Trumpism. And for me, that's really the big big question that we need to understand. Otherwise, it's going to lead to just a thin analysis or political response to what's been going on. A lot of the complaints we hear about President Trump have been complaints made more broadly decades earlier, at least a decade earlier. So I'm more of a, he's a product of an era rather than the cause of an era. It's really risky to try to evaluate a presidency in real time. I think a lot of times it's understood a lot differently later. But if if we were going to risk that right now, what do you think he's doing like big things that are mistakes? And what do you think he might be doing, if anything, that isn't? It is hard to evaluate uh, what's a mistake and what's not only in that that will depend on your political perspective. But certainly... We already can see things he's doing that are consequential. I think in the realm of public policy, he's made a number of you know serious moves using executive power, whether we're talking about ramping up deportation measures and weakening asylum rules to the separation of families, or we're talking about the rolling back of climate change regulations and workplace regulations to the tax cuts. He's already, in his first few years, put together a pretty formidable number of policy changes. They might be reversed down the line, but right now, uh, he's not a president who's done nothing. And so that's very consequential. Uh, some people will look at this and say uh, it's been a terrible mistake in the direction of public policy. It's, it's dangerous for the climate. It's dangerous for our economy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the second area where you see the consequences is kind of what he's doing with, with the institution. Again, I think he's taking elements of what's gone on in politics for some years now, the willingness to say things that are not true, the willingness to break with conventions uh, in ways that destabilize the presidency, and to do them in, in pretty dramatic fashion so that we won't look at the presidency the same way. I think he's translated a lot of what came out of Tea Party politics into the Oval Office, and that will forever be part of what can happen. And he's really exposed some of the limits of the checks and balances. That's really, for me, always 
quite interesting to watch where he'll push the boundaries in terms of what he can do, whether it's a grand thing like trying to stop an investigation into his administration or whether it's what he says on his public platform via Twitter. And there's criticism, but the pushback's kind of limited. He's he's still there, and not much is really happening to him because of what he's done. And so these are just three examples, in my mind, of, of consequential changes from, from the presidency that we will look back on as as part of the the Trump legacy. I don't know where it goes, but we can already see that. Finally, that he has elevated some illiberal parts of our politics that he did not create that were there in opposition to racial justice and nativism. He has elevated them by forming a connection with the president, and that's a big deal. Again, we don't know where this all goes, but he has given these parts of our politics the kind of standing they haven't had for decades. And I don't think that's going to be easily erased. I remember that after Eisenhower was out of office for a while, that there was a book came out by Greenstein about the hidden hand presidency that reshaped how people thought of him as a leader and came to view that, that he had greater skills as a chief executive than people recognized at the time. Do you think that people might look at the way Trump, I mean, I'm no fan of Trump. I think he's kind of an odious person. But do you think that people might come to see that there was a leadership style that had some logic to it here? Or do you think it's more, I don't know, random behavior by kind of an unusual character? It's a good question. The, the Greenstein book was important, and, and Eisenhower was seen for a long time as this bumbling, very nice guy in the presidency who let others, he delegated, and let others basically uh, lead the White House for him. And, and it turned out that wasn't true behind the scenes. Eisenhower knew exactly what he was doing and was very deliberative about how he conducted his presidency, and, and it's forever changed our views. When you say that about President Trump, and I have said a version of that, that often elicits a pretty big blowback. It's really interesting, including from people I tend to be on the same page with. I think there's one worldview of him that he is exactly what he appears to be. There's no logic. There's no reason. There's no method to the madness. This is just a person literally acting out on the public stage and seeing where things go. I don't know. I I think there is more of a method. It doesn't mean there is uh, a hidden genius there, but I think he understands parts of politics that he's trying to exploit. And I've written about that. I think, one, he understands we live in a very partisan era, and he understands that most Republicans, he's always understood this, will support him. They're not going anywhere no matter what he does. He exploits that by trying to really play not just to the base, but to the Republican Party. He's not interested in a bipartisan coalition. He's interested in making sure that that his party continues to support him. There is a logic to that. If you study the last few decades of American history in terms of what he is trying to do. I also think with the media, he has this really pretty good feel of how the media works, the way the news cycle works, even the connection between social media and television media that he certainly has exploited. I mean, he knows how to shape the conversation within seconds. He knows how to create confusion and uh, a certain level of political dizziness. 
through what he says. So, so my guess is when we look back, we will understand more of that. And I don't know if it's deliberate, meaning that he's sitting in the Oval Office saying, let's do this strategy, or it's just an instinct of someone who himself was an adult during this era and has a pretty good feel for how the system works. Uh, it might not lead him to be reelected, certainly hasn't led him to be popular nationally, but I think it's a mistake not to see that there is a logic to some of what he is doing strategically. I think I agree with that. A couple pieces of that that come to mind for me are, I think he acts as very a blunt force instrument, maybe without understanding or caring about subtleties, but like the way he's working on the Jewish vote in his mind by reaching out to the right in Israel, or the way he's trying to peel off some of the African-American vote by some work on the incarceration problem. I feel like he's going after some parts of the electorate with some intention. You've written about some of that. What, what do you think is going on there? Absolutely. I think if you take what's his uh, position with, with Jewish voters, I think you can see he is trying to appeal to a, a pretty small segment of the American Jewish community, a very politically conservative segment. He's trying to do that by supporting the policies of the Netanyahu government, and he thinks that's probably the best bet to winning that cluster over. He's a guy who's just trying to win small bits of the electorate beyond the natural support of the Republican Party. He's trying to bring over bits and pieces like he did in 2016. And at the same time, you know, he's willing to engage in pretty controversial and dangerous talk, including about the Jewish community, which appeals to other parts of, of his coalition. And he does it pretty systematically. He'll hammer away at disloyalty in the democratic Jewish community, and then he'll turn around in the same breath and, and talk about his support uh, for the Netanyahu government. And, and I don't think that's the product of someone who doesn't have a sense of what he's doing. In some ways, he's, he's pretty explicit about what he's doing, and he doesn't even feel the need to hide it. And we see that with many groups. You know, in, during his campaign, uh, he really paraded the list of judges and was pretty explicit. He's going to win over this evangelical uh, conservative vote, make sure they didn't go anywhere. He had a way to do it that isn't totally illogical. So I think he does see what his constituencies are. I also think he understands that he won't be loved. People often talk about the fact he can't crack the 50% approval rating, and, and that's definitely true. And I think there's part of him that understands he never will. Uh, and so his goal is to make everyone or make more voters hate the other person or hate the other institution. So it's not about winning support. It's about making sure his opponents lose support. And so there, too, there is a way to understand what he's trying to do and seeing that, you know, he is not just swinging wildly. He is trying to systematically win through this kind of strategy, which, again, it's very dangerous. It's very divisive. And he goes really far. But I don't think it's all just some random actions that we're seeing come out of the Oval Office. And it seems to me like he's very likely to run a campaign and maybe even deal with election results in a way that doesn't follow rules, in a way that doesn't value the democracy, but values his own success or failure. 
one thing I, I do teach and, and we wrote about in Fall Lines is the 2000 election and the contest over the election recount. And you could see some of the, the new Republican Party emerge then when uh, there was a willingness to go as far as possible in stopping the recount to make sure that the election was settled in a, in a favorable way. That was a taste, it turned out, of what was going to happen. I do believe he is willing to break every rule possible until someone pushes back on him in an effort to achieve victory. And I think you're going to see that in the election. He's certainly willing to ignore all norms. He just doesn't believe that they matter. He doesn't believe that they're necessary. And at this point, he doesn't believe that he will be punished for violating them. And so I think you're going to see this election, a merger of that outlook with the power of the presidency, which is different than in 2016, Uh, whether we're talking about investigations of opponents or stirring up some of the ugliest elements of the electorate. He will be willing to go to all of these places, and, and that will be an important part of the fall of 220. It seems like that ginned up worry about the caravan in the midterms is kind of a preview of what he might experiment with. Oh, absolutely. You saw it. The the midterm for him, it it was a a roadmap. And I think in his mind, most of us will say the House races really turned out poorly for him. uh, And that's a lesson of why his strategy isn't working. On the other hand, I think in his mind, He increased his Senate majority, and that strategy worked for him. And that uh, Senate majority has protected him in the last year and plus. And I think that's what he remembers. And you're also getting tastes of it with the stories about Joe Biden and his son and uh, the stories we've seen uh, from Giuliani pushing for an investigation into Biden's son's ties with uh, the Ukraine and how that it might have affected policy. I think it's not only going to be the rhetoric, but I think it's going to be the investigative power that the president brings to the table, which is going to be important. And now we also have stories about Trump-allied networks gearing up to intimidate journalists and to spread information about reporters. All of this is going to be, in my mind, greater than what people are imagining. I think it's going to make him awfully hard to defeat, actually. We talked earlier about like whether or not he's a total aberration. When you think about analogs in U.S. history, who's coming to mind for you? There's no presidential analog you know, since Andrew Johnson that you can say, well, well look at what the president's doing. It's, it's really like uh, what President X did. The, the closest, really, for me is George Wallace. I, I do think there's a lot of similarity Wallace obviously didn't become president, but in terms of what they tried to foster and what their message was, uh, there are resemblances between the two. But for me, it's less that he has analogs that you can say there are precedents uh, as opposed to what we've seen in recent decades. So for me, that Tea Party era of politics, when the Tea Party came to town after 2010, a lot of the things they really promoted, whether it was totally disregarding uh, norms on Capitol Hill or breaking with institutional traditions like raising the debt ceiling or their willingness to embrace a a kind of toxic rhetoric and, and a lie with conservative media outlets, 
that's the precedent that's that's important for me. Before that, Newt Gingrich, who who I said I'm writing about, he by the 80s was promoting a lot of the political style that Trump embraces, tearing down institutions, character assassination, vision of partisanship, a use of the media uh, by creating chaos and conflict to promote an agenda. All of these things have been in the works, uh, certainly within the Republican Party and the conservative movement. And that's the foundation that helps create him as opposed to we've seen this in in other other presidents, but but for political figures, you know, Wallace really is the one who keeps coming to mind. I feel like he may have paid quite a bit of attention to both the impeachment attempts uh, with Nixon and and Clinton, and learned from how both of those handled it. Maybe doesn't think much of Nixon resigning. Maybe learned quite a bit about how Clinton successfully fought off conviction and and revived himself. What do you think of that? I think that's absolutely correct. And again, we always have to remember President Trump as Donald Trump and Donald Trump as a person who grew up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, someone who was watching the same world we all saw. And and I think as president, yes, he. I, I think there's probably part of him that looks back at the Nixon impeachment and sees someone who quit, or sees a party that quit on the president, and very determined not to have that outcome happen, and make sure his party is behind him. And Clinton, I think, is is even more vivid in his mind. You know, he watched Clinton. For him, Clinton was successful because he attacked the investigator, and he went after the investigation, and and the the Clinton family focused on the partisan. Uh, origins of the investigation and impeachment rather than the substance. And I think for him, that is a model. And I think he's willing to go a lot farther in how he does it. And and certainly he is willing to delegitimize the investigation and the news media stories about it in ways I don't think Clinton would have. Uh, but I do think he thinks about those quite a bit in trying to figure out how he can uh, survive this. One of the goals of a lot of presidents is to have party discipline in their party. And a lot of the good presidents have struggled with that. This one really hasn't. Why? That's true. I wrote somewhere that he, he in some ways, is fulfilling what Woodrow Wilson wrote about before becoming president in terms of a really unified party government where Congress and the, uh, the, the congressional majority and the president work hand in hand, more like what you see in Europe uh, than a very divided, fragmented uh, system. And he has been able to do that very well. I mean, uh, I can't think of a president who has had the party so aligned behind them in, in this way the reason I say that, it's not simply that he has pretty good roll call votes or party loyalty on Capitol Hill. No matter what he does, he can do the most outrageous things or provocative or politically costly things, and the party doesn't budge. Uh, so he has been able to maintain that discipline. Part of it is uh, the party is just very disciplined. That's what I've been talking about. It's, it's become more homogeneous, the party. The divisions are far and few between the Republican Party has really sophisticated mechanisms now from fundraising 
to primary threats to make sure everyone stays in line. And so it's a party that isn't prone at this point to real great division. And then added to that, he is willing to be incredibly political against any potential Republican threat. Uh, he's constantly campaigning. He's willing to go to states and districts where he might have a problem or where he has support. And he makes it clear uh, where he stands. And he uses his Twitter feed also as a way to make sure that everyone stays loyal. So uh, because he is comfortable in the world of fierce partisanship, he can capitalize on a Republican party that isn't very divided and that's pretty unified on most of the big issues. I know that one of your interests is in reforming our campaign election system, and we're right in the middle of watching it in in action right now, watching uh, the Democrats try to sort out who's going to be a nominee. What do you think of how it's set up right now in terms of whether it is a good way of finding the best candidate to win and to govern? There's parts of the system clearly that are just not good. The changes we've seen in money in politics, private money in politics, since the 1990s and certainly in the early 2000s, and this has been bipartisan, where the money has just really flooded in and a lot of the disclosure rules that we had created after Watergate are being undermined by bundlers and dark money and hidden money. All of that, there's just no good that comes out of that. And I talk a lot about campaign finance reform, though I realize the prospects for reform remain small. But it's undercutting our democracy. And, and I don't think you have to be a Democrat or Republican to feel that way. It plays out in the process. Joe Biden spends a lot of time right now raising big money from donors. And I don't blame him for it. That's the way you win. You know, it takes time away from him meeting with voters. It takes time away from him trying to raise money from people don't don't have as much money. And ultimately, it creates ties with big donors who are going to want things back should he become president. And again, this isn't simply him, but that's a corrosive part of our system. And the second part that's problematic is there's a circus-like aspect to how this is all unfolded. The reforms of the 70s, which broke the old party bosses and the smoke-filled rooms of conventions, made primaries and caucuses and debates the way we pick candidates. And that was a good thing. It was a democratic move, and it, I think, opened up the process. But obviously, as we watch it, you know, some of this has been a kind of thin way that we now evaluate who the best candidate is. It, it's based on sound bites or perceived momentum and photo ops that I don't know how you change it, um, but I'm not sure in the end this is the most deliberative way to pick who the next president is. And, and a pet peeve of mine, I feel like the polling industry, which is very good, polls are useful, but it's almost become overwhelming. They are the new party bosses. It's almost as if the polls are going to tell Democrats who should be candidate rather than voters in Iowa or New Hampshire. And I do believe the constant poll numbers might reify in some ways how we think of candidates. But I think that's another part of our discussions we need to think about. I'm wondering how you feel about, as a student of Congress, the filibuster, which seems to be maybe on its way out and has been sort of a such a huge institutional part of how that body has worked. Where are we going and what do you think we ought to do about it? I've written that I think 
the proponents of reform have a pretty strong argument. You know, the filibuster is something that's always been misused uh, in congressional history. This was the tool that opponents of civil rights depended on in the 1950s and 60s to prevent things like ending segregation, really basic human rights in this country. And so for me, as a student of Congress, I don't look at the filibuster nostalgically. I, I actually see it as something that's often been the number one tool or number one weapon in preventing changes that have broad support and changes that, looking back in history, were, were quite important. In recent decades, it's been abused even more. It's just become this tool that, that totally ties up the upper chamber and I think has become an important reason uh, some of the dysfunction in Washington is what it is. And we are now giving an upper chamber that already favors a small part of the country uh, because rural, thinly populated states have just as much representation as heavily urbanized states uh, and more diverse states. And adding to that this filibuster. And uh, I think a lot of the big problems that we talk about will never, ever be solved if the filibuster exists, such as climate change. And so the argument is now clearly on the side of the reformers. And uh, there's been many parts of Congress that we've changed and, and, and we've survived. And, and reform has often been important in making Congress better. And it might just be that the filibuster and, and getting rid of it altogether is one of the changes that in 2019 is necessary. If you don't get rid of it, even if you do have a Democratic president, for example, in 221, and even if you have a Democratic Senate, you're, you're going to get almost nothing out of Congress. It, it's hard to really support anymore. Julian, it's really been an honor to talk to you. Is there like one question that I haven't asked that you would like to answer? The only thing I, I would end on going back to what we started is that really when I got into all this, my biggest aspiration wasn't to make a political point and it wasn't simply to be a professor at Princeton. It was to try to contribute to our public conversation and debates about politics so that we can work through these immense problems we have and at least have a more sophisticated understanding of how things are working, what the problems are, what the alternatives are that are on the table. I continue many years later to try to do that in, in all these realms. And although you hear a lot of bad things about the public square, uh, I think there's a lot of good people trying to do that. And I hope those conversations can continue. Well, I'm glad you're out there doing what you're doing. Anything else you want to say? No, that's great. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was Professor Julian Zelizer of Princeton University. Glad to have his knowledgeable voice in the media mix. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. <laughs>